Dan Belkowski, founder of Product Tranquility. Welcome to the show. How are you? Good to see you, Brandon. Doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic after our prolonged setup. It was, that's how you start all podcasts. You talk about how long it took to get set up, but we'll skip that part. So, and we'll get right into the fun stuff. It wouldn't be modern times if we didn't get to complain about, you know, remote work and audio video setups. That's right. So just everybody that's listening, just assume we spent 10 minutes complaining about it, but it all worked out. We're here. Nonetheless, it's going to be great. Dan, you and I have known each other for a while. First met, I think way back uh, at SolarWinds, you were doing some product management, I was doing, I guess, some product marketing. Who knows? It's it's hard to remember. But this is where I wanted to start. There were crazy times. There were crazy times. There was a lot going on. You know, it was. uh, There were meetings. There were spreadsheets. It was all all (laughs) a simpler time. It was pre-COVID. We didn't even know what problems we were going to have in the future. But nonetheless, what I think is interesting, and we were talking uh, offline, uh, is you in 2017 did what I think many people have often thought about, maybe I should just not work for a while and I should travel the world. But unlike many people, you actually did it. You actually left the corporate world for a little bit and you took a sabbatical in 2017. So I want you to just paint the picture. One, like how long have you been thinking about it? And then two, what made you actually take the leap and actually say, I'm going to take some time away and go travel the world? Tell me the story. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot to that story. So, um, the seed got planted, you know, many years prior. Uh, I don't know if you're a Tim Ferriss fan at all. Um, one of Austin's more recent famous residents uh, who, who migrated. Right, four-hour work week fame, right? Isn't that his, his exactly his thing? Yeah, uh-huh. that, was, that was his original, and then he has a bunch of four-hour, you know, X other books. Um, plus, a very famous and excellent podcast. Um, but yeah, I read Four Hour Work Week. I think about right when it came out, probably oh seven oh eight. And also at the same time had a couple of friends who just decided to up and go on long-term uh, trips themselves. One of my best friends in the world, he just like sold everything he owned and moved to Bali and he's still over in Southeast Asia. Oh, wow. uh, and another friend who, who went and actually traveled for uh, two full years. Uh, and so, you know, had, had those influences and it was one of those things that I'd always kind of wanted to do and was always in the back of my mind and, and I think the way you know, I describe it to people in terms of making the decision is, you know, your different areas of your life, whether that's your career, your finances, your health, your family situation, you know, relationship with a significant other, right? Those are all going to be, you know, either, you know, it's all green to go or they're going to be, you know, red lights effectively, right? And, and there's never going to be a time in your life where all the lights are going to be green. You're going to have to run some red lights uh, and you just have to make that decision and just, and just go. If you like anything like this, if you're just waiting for the perfect time, you're never going to go. And then all of a sudden there's a global pandemic and like, Oh yeah, you thought you were going to travel like good luck now. Um, So, so I'm super glad that I went when I did because now, I mean, look, it's still possible. Anything. I also want to put that out. It's, it's possible for anyone in any situation to do. Um, I don't think I was particularly special. I think for, for Americans, it seems a little odd, but you know, you know, gap years are, are very popular with Australians, with Europeans. Um, I met a lot of, I met traveling families on the road. I met people who were traveling for like, 
10 years plus, like consistently. So, um, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, I'm glad I did it and I, and I went when I did, but, um, you know, I think anyone can, can do it if you really just, you know, sort of make the decision. And for me, I, you know, I reached a point in, in my career that I was just like, you know what, the, you know, the, the time is never going to be better. If I don't go now, like the excuses are just going to amount. And so I just, I pulled the and trigger. And I, All right. Well, I go did. back. Let's give, let's do a little mini review of four hour work week. Cause I read four hour work week, you know, when I guess it was like famous, like everyone was reading it. So, but like my big takeaway from four hour work week was like, wait a minute, he's just redefining the stuff that he likes to do as like work. Right. It was just like, he's actually still working. Right. This is my whole take on it. I was like, and then he just sort of like the stuff he doesn't do want to do he hires, you know, essentially hires usually people offshore, low cost providers to kind of like take care of this administrative stuff. But he's still actually doing work. He just says it's fun and he doesn't call it work, but it's still work. So, yeah, I, and no, so that the whole thing was like, I was so at the, at the end of it, I was like, I don't really buy this. I, I'm not really buying this. And then, of course, like he had the whole idea of he wrote the book, then he wrote more books and he does the talks and he has this whole thing. And I'm like, this feels like a very prepackaged, you're really working. You're just doing work you really like with a flexible schedule. So, yeah, wait, so did I miss a lot? It? No, no, there's, there's a lot I could comment on there. So I think um, the way I talk to people about the book is, and I reread the book while I was traveling and doing the sabbatical. So, so it gave me a, a, a new perspective on it um, while I was on, you know, on this adventure. I think the way I describe it to people is it's really two different books. The first third is the one I highly recommend to people. The first third really is sort of lays out a, a theory of work and life that is, I think, really refreshing and needed in especially the American culture, because effectively, you know, he sort of makes the case that you know, we've been sold this narrative that isn't actually true, which is, you know, work hard, you know, live your whole life for your job, accumulate wealth and status. And then when you retire, then it's the time to sort of live your life and go explore or, or, you know, learn that language or, you know, go, you know, take up that hobby. Right. But, you know, first of all, that as a, as a narrative, right, that's only even been possible for maybe two or three generations. It hasn't been that possible for very long. Most people throughout, you know, the uh, span of human history, uh, you know, worked pretty much until they were dead. So retirement is a relatively new thing. And then um, even within our modern, you know, industrialized life where retirement's been a thing, oftentimes people get to that stage of life and they realize that, oh, like, I don't have the the drive to do it now. I'm tired or my health or, or, or whatever is not at a place where I can actually go, you know, in, enjoy these, you know, golden years, right? Or or people also, I think the thing is they, they have this fantasy of, oh yeah, when I retire, I'll go sail the Mediterranean for, you know, years. And it's like, look, have you, have you sailed the Mediterranean for a month? Like how you're, you're signing yourself up for, to do it for years. And like, you have no idea if you'd even want to do it for a month. And like Travis for an afternoon. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and so, but I mean, I think people sort of, they, 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 they tie themselves to work and to jobs that they're not really passionate about. They're doing it for a paycheck for some, you know, unforeseen day in the future that they actually get to go enjoy their lives. And he's like, he's, and, and so he lays out the case that, look, this is, this is not how humans are supposed to live. And here there's, there's another way. And so he kind of puts forward this philosophy of sort of mini retirements, which is, yeah, like absolutely go work, be a value to society, produce useful things. Um, but then 
you know, figure out how to structure your life so you can kind of step away from that and for six months go live in another country and you know do whatever you want to do with that time go volunteer for a charity go you know become a tango champion in buenos aires go you know learn uh, another language right but but you know no man is guaranteed tomorrow, right? right. So stop writing this check. So it's really the mini yourself. retirement part of the Jim Ferris. I because I agree with that. I think that's sort of like the idea of like deferred gratification versus like, hey, spend some time throughout your life doing the things you love and things that you think challenge you, and find find a way to do that. And I think that part is that part I, I liked. I would agree with you. Yeah. That that maybe yeah. so so here I'm gonna like I'll summarize our entire four hour work week uh, review. It's like read the first ninety pages. We'll call it like read the first one hour of four hour work week. And then the rest of yes. it's like whatever. Like all exactly. the other stuff. Exactly. Well, he says he says something else there, which is like he's like, I didn't want I think I'm pretty sure it's four hour work week. He's like, I didn't want to be the old guy with the Porsche. Right. And, and, I mean, you know, I mean, he's, he's made enough money. He definitely can afford many Porsches now, but um, so, but, but, it, but I think what it meant was that like people end up in this race of continuing, continuing to acquire material possession. Cause they, they, they've gotten themselves in this treadmill of, Oh, I work. And then I really don't know what else to do with my money. So I spend it on material things that don't really make me happy. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a yeah, spend on experiences, there. right? Things that, you know, and then end of your life. So I, I think we can all get by that. All right. So you read the Tim Ferriss book. Now the part that I think scares people, at least, I mean, I'm just going to speak for the audience. Maybe it's just me. It's like, okay, you're going to do this, but then you got to have some money to travel. Like, right. I mean, that's the first part. So so what did you do? Did you just like save a little extra money? Did you save up money? You just been accumulating money. You know, did you go through, go to your retirement? Like what financial planning did you bring to like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do a mini retirement. I'm going to fund it. Like, how did you go through the, just like, I need to pay for this year. What did you do? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. And I, so I'll start by saying, um, as Americans, I think we overestimate dramatically how much a trip, a trip like this costs. Um, and what you actually need to do it. So um, one of the things is that, you know, yeah, if you want to go travel for a year inside the U.S., like that's going to be a very expensive proposition because the U.S. is a very expensive country. If you go to Thailand or Vietnam or India or, I don't know, pretty much anywhere else in the world that's not Western Europe or the United States, like your dollar goes incredibly far. Um, also, I met people who literally had barely anything who were traveling long-term. Um, the options are limitless to what you can do these days. I mean, uh, I even did a few of these uh, while I was traveling where you can do uh, volunteer work in exchange for room and board and uh, you know, meals and shelter effectively. And so people would just go from, I work on you know this organic farm in New Zealand for a month, and then I go you know, to this other place in Australia and do the same thing, and then and just kind of volunteer their way around the world. So um, for myself personally, uh, I was at a stage sort of mid-career, you know, I didn't want to fully rough it, but, you know, I had been fortunate in some of my work endeavors and also uh, it was able to uh, to save money and effectively just uh, traveled off of, off of savings. But, you know, really, I think people just overestimate what I think you need um, to, to. And do you were doing this, this you went by yourself, right? You didn't, it wasn't like you were bringing anyone else along on the, all along on this, uh, this voyage, right? Uh, yeah. So what I, what I like to say is I, I, I traveled solo, but I was never alone. Um, wow. so that's, you, you know what, that sounds like a book right there. That sounds like a Tim Ferriss book <laughs> that we should write. That's the next one, but go on. What do you mean by that? So one of the advantages of traveling alone or, or traveling solo is that you have two choices, right? Which is go and meet new people 
or sit around by yourself for what effectively is a year and a half. And like, let's just say the latter is not, is not an appealing prospect. Um, I think the other thing that people don't, uh, especially in, in, uh, Americans who are listening to this, um, don't understand that like, yeah, hotels, if you're going and staying in hotels, like, look, I wasn't staying at the Ritz Carlton or the five, four seasons or, you know, hotel intercontinental, right. Those were, those those are the worst places to stay if you're traveling solo. Um, you know, there's much better options, whether they're like, I mean, these days, super easy with uh, couch surfing or with um, Airbnb and like shared rentals or uh, with uh, hostels. Um, there's so many options and you go sort of meet other people. Right. Um, and so then also I just have, you know, through my network of friends that I've accumulated over years have people that just live in far off locations and, and made an excuse to, to ring them up and be like, Hey, I'm going to be in your city in a week. Like you want to hang out? And I'm going to be um, staying with you. <laughs> I'm going to be staying with you. So. <laughs> okay. So you, okay. So I think we got it here. So we you saved up some money. We got some motivation from Tim Ferriss and now you're actually going on the trip. And I think your advice here was like, Hey, pick low cost or less expensive areas in the United States, which are plentiful. So how did you like, when you're like bought the plane ticket, did you like come up with some itinerary, you know, to your point, like, like I'm going to go volunteer and do something to get started. Or was it like, I'm literally getting on a plane and I will figure it out when I get there. Yeah. So uh, it's funny. Cause I actually did, when I came back last year, I did a presentation at, at product camp Austin on this. And, and the way I described it is I had a very agile uh, for product managers in the audience, very <laughs> agile approach to my, to my uh, trip planning. Like I don't personally, I've, I've heard of people that, plan like plan for one or two years to go, for a trip that's going to be one or two years so like you know <laughs> you know t minus zero minus a year right are like planning their trip and i just think that's a huge waste of time because like you just you know like the you know the principles of agile product management you just learn so much once you hit the ground you start talking to locals you start talking to other travelers who have been on the road for months they tell you about places you there's not in any guidebooks or that you would you wouldn't even know if you read about it that it was someplace interesting or there was things to do there um or you know you might you might end up at a place and really like it and be like oh like i want to stay here and oh but you know that means that you know, my other year of itinerary planning now has to change and you have to uproot that and, and change all of it. I just think it's a huge waste of time. So the way I approach it is uh, in effectively like pillars uh, or you might appreciate this from the back days of solar winds, the big rocks. Oh my um, gosh. Okay. <laughs> yes. Right. Uh -huh. bringing, you, bringing you back to the good old days. Yes. Um, so, so, so the, so the idea of pillars or big rocks is that you, know, you have, you have effectively uh, a couple of uh, key things that you want to do. And then you're like, I'll fill up, kind of fill in all the other details around those. So I knew I wanted to go to uh, New Zealand. I'd never been there. Um, I had been to Southeast Asia before, but I'd never been to Vietnam and heard really good things. So I knew I wanted to go to Vietnam. Um, in like, I'd gone to Europe before, but never to Scandinavia. So I wanted to go to the Scandinavian countries. Um, I'd never been to the Middle East. I mean, there were a lot of other places I, I, I wanted to go, but didn't end up. But, but that was kind of how I thought about it. It was just like, oh, I want to go to Petra and Jordan, right? And so just, just like a few, but a few of those, right? Like less than 10. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, all right, I've got a, you know, 10 dots on a map. Let me think of some sort of way that I'm not just constantly, you know, spending a bunch of jet fuel going, <laughs> backtracking back and forth. Uh, one thing I will recommend to folks if they are looking at this, 
Uh, the airlines will try to sell you on these round round the world trip uh, tickets. Uh, don't buy them. I think they're a huge waste of money, um, and uh, they they have all sorts of restrictions that make traveling this way uh, almost impossible. You need like uh, you need like a lawyer to help you through the, the the fine print. And the tickets are, I mean, they're expensive, and I think they're probably you know I travel for a year and a half, and I think I probably spent less on airfare than I would have if I bought one of those uh, more restrictive. So you basically, classes. like you said here, you kind of had some basic. I want to go to these ten places. Get you get to one, and then sort of kind of you just kind of figure it out like have the experience and then decide okay well i think i want to go to this next place around this time and yeah, just buy, yeah. buy so, the ticket for the so, next place so, yeah so so i'm talking to you back in austin but i i left the trip i was i had been living in austin and so when i when i went to go buy a plane ticket um i i wanted to go to new zealand so i was like okay i'm gonna buy austin new zealand and while i was researching that trip i realized that uh fiji is on the way oh. and and fiji will like they basically do um what other country does this is iceland which they want to subsidize people to sort of stop over and spend money in their country so like effectively was the same price for me to fly and stop in fiji for a week before i went to new zealand as it was to just go straight from the u.s to new zealand so but that was the only ticket i bought when i left and I was like, well, I'm going to be in New Zealand for a couple of weeks I'll, I'll, or a couple of months. I'll figure it out, you know, when I'm done with New Zealand, where I'm going next. Um, and uh, kind of went that way. And then would, yeah, it, 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 the one thing other you have to, you have to watch out for is when you're doing that. Um, I almost, I almost didn't make it to Fiji because in the San Francisco airport, which my connection was the very beginning of my trip, uh, there's, there's. <laughs> concerns that different countries have about making sure that you have a ongoing ticket leaving their country oh. and so even though new zealand was two countries ahead i didn't have a departing flight and so i ended up sweet talking to people at the counter just let me go to fiji because i was like oh it's not your problem I'll, I'll deal with the new zealand people so let me get on but you do have to watch out for some things like that but you know did you give uh, them like a copy of the four-hour work week you should be like I did, listen I did, read I this book and this is what I'm doing. I'm on a mini retirement and you're, you're, you're killing it. You're killing it with your, your American. I don't know if that's American with your international flight restrictions. I'm going on a, I love it. Okay. So you literally, so you get on there, you fly, fly there. And so, you know, we could probably go on for like three hours about the whole trip here, but let's, let's try to uh, kind of think about, you know, of all the places you, you went, like, what is the place that maybe surprised you the most? So I got, I've got, two answers for that. So I think um, the first is just in pure, like natural beauty. The place that took the the top was uh, Norway. So the West coast of Norway is absolutely stunning. Um, Maybe you've heard of the fjords Mm -hmm. um, and they are just magnificent. Um, So I had rented a car uh, in Sweden. Uh, oh, by the way, yeah, rent the car in Sweden and drive it to Norway because everything in Norway is like four times more expensive. And, and like <laughs> Norway is ridiculously expensive. Also, like every other car is a, is a Tesla Model S, which is which is fun. Um, wow, okay, but nice. uh, but yeah, if you go uh, rent a car in Sweden and then just just drove basically from the southern coasts, you know, on up, just you know, weaving in and out of the, the mountains. It was, uh, it was absolutely stunning. Um, and did it in the, the height of, uh, summer. So it was one of those where the, <laughs> the sun barely ever set and just, yeah, would drive until I didn't want to drive anymore. And then there's a bunch of campings. You just, you just pull out your tent and, uh, you know, you can, you can free camp, uh, if you can find a, a level spot, cause most of the places along the road are sheer cliff face. So you don't want to, you know, I did not have the setup to do, to do that, but, um, 
yeah, so so definitely check out Norway. Uh, I think the other thing that was incredibly impactful and 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 surprising in in many different ways was I while I was on the trip, I d- completed uh, two ten day meditation retreats, um, which was just, I mean. By hands down, the most difficult thing I've ever done, but also the most rewarding. Now, are these the um, silent meditation things? Silent meditation. Okay. So like you went so, the full days, not, no talking, no, there's, no nothing. Yeah, huh? there's not, a, and actually no talking is not the most surprising thing. There's no, no reading, no writing, no, um, <laughs> no, no thinking, nothing. no blinking. Yeah, well, yeah, it was only, yeah, only, only thinking. Um, right. Yeah, there's, 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 there's nothing to distract you from yourself, um, which is, uh you know, uh, an interesting, an interesting experience. God, it sounds sure. like torture. Honestly, I was like, although that, as I say that, I'm like, well, maybe that prepared you well for COVID. You know, now we all just live in, you know, our buildings and, uh, although I guess we get to talk to people, but that's, uh, all right. So 10 day meditation, West coast of Norway. All right. So right now there's someone listening to this. They're like, they're on the fence. They're like, they've been thinking about doing something like this for their whole life. Let's say. And this is your your opportunity to tell them one thing. Like, what would you tell him or her right now to get them off the fence and be like, this is the moment. Do it. I think people don't actually realize how easy it is today with all the tools that we have. Um, it's once you get out there, you could figure it out. Like being able to travel with a smartphone is like, being able to cheat like it's you know uh because because i've done it i've done it both ways like i in uh, 2010 i did a three-month trip in western europe and like western europe also western if you want to start if you're scared about starting western europe is probably the easiest like it's culturally very similar i mean it's like, oh the french they love baguettes whatever um but you know but like like a lot of the same principles apply right the transportation systems works in right so it's right? pretty like, easy though maybe that's a good know, way to get going so it's a way yeah. to get going right i mean things you know everything functions i mean like you know you get into other countries central south america right like oh public transit is a little you know interesting and you know just um there's just different different uh, places have different challenges. Uh, Western Europe's challenging because it's it's super expensive uh, and it's full of other Americans. Yeah, um, doing the same kind of thing, right? Doing, so. doing the same <laughs> thing. But I but I did a I did that was my first solo uh, trip that was um, you know extended. So I was like three months, and yeah, I, I at that point I didn't have a smartphone. I, I actually didn't have a cell phone at all, and I, I was that tourist coming out of the subway with the giant map. Like, there's nothing more disorienting when traveling of coming out of a subway in a foreign city mm-hmm. because you've totally lost your sense of direction, yep. and now we're trying to like sort of read street signs you've never seen in another language and like look at a map you have no orientation. So I was like sitting down in the corner with that giant fold out <laughs> map, you know. Um, but you know, these days it's it's just you know there's so many tools, uh, you know places to stay, ways to connect with other people while you're on the road. Good, go, no excuses. I know excuses. All right, so listen, I, this is what I'm gonna I'm gonna assume. Post COVID, we're all going on a sabbatical. I mean, I think the entire world is going to to want to travel. So maybe it will. Though. I'm sure there will be many people once uh, once we're beyond this pandemic, we we can travel. So. Well, let's just kind of, before we kind of get into your background, what brought you back? Was it just like, hey, was it time? Were you like, I'm ready to rejoin society? I'm out of money. Uh, I, I want like a more stable social life. All of the above, none of the above. Like what, what, how do you end a trip like this? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so my original plan was a year. I ended up going for a year and a half. And while I say the plan was a year, because people will be like, dude, you're on an endless vacation. Like, why even, why have an end date? Because I, I think the other thing to, to keep in mind is the mental model that it's not just a like two, you can't just take a two week trip to Cancun and extrapolate that times, you know, 25 or times, you know, whatever. Oh, if you um, could, that'd be so fantastic. If you could, right? Yes. Maybe, maybe it'd be okay. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, look, you, you know, and this goes to the meditation and everything else. Like you don't get to escape the world. You don't get to escape your own problems. Right. You, you get to go everywhere you go, right. Mm-hmm. Everywhere you go, there you are. Right. Is, is never more true. Um, so, you know, look, there's, there's challenges, right. I mean, you, the, the day to day, right. Like maybe you're not working a job, but like every, your whole world, there's no routine. It's turned upside down. Like you don't know where anything is. You don't speak the language. You know, maybe you meet a group of friends and you go to another city and you're having to start that from scratch. Um, I kind of compare the end of the trip to, um, like Forrest Gump when he was, you know, he went running for, for like two right. years or whatever he has. Like, and he's, and at the end he kind of stops. He's like, oh, kind of done now. Like, I kind of felt like that. Like, yeah, I could, I could keep going, but like, I just, I'm, I'm kind of done. I just yeah. don't want to no, you kind of fulfilled the, the, the need there. I think that's, I think that's, I mean, I actually get it. I mean, not that I was forced scump running, but like, I get it. Like at some point you're like, I've done what I needed to do here. Like I'm satisfied. I'm, I'm ready to move on to the, to the next thing. So, yeah. all right, well, let's go back in time and say, so, cause you were once a software engineer before getting into product management and now consulting, but I thought it may be a good way. I think a lot of people have also thought about this same path. And so when we hear your history here, so you're a software engineer and probably writing some code. And then you decided to get your MBA. And I know you went to uh, the Northwestern University, Kellogg School of Management, of course. So like, take me through that process. Why did you get an MBA and why did you go to Kellogg? Yeah, so so I, I started undergrad in the in the everyone's going to be a dot-com millionaire, uh, graduated high school oh, in 99. You, you and me um, both, baby. Me, yes. And, uh, yeah, we're all going to be rich. Yes. We're all going to be rich, right? So, so I went to undergrad to become an engineer, got my degree in computer engineering, um, and then graduated right into the dot-com crash, uh, um, which was a fun experience. Now, look, it, it brought me down to Austin. I ended up getting a great job with a great company here, uh, actually National Instruments up north. Um, excellent, excellent company. And um, over time, though, what I realized is software engineering was not a fit for me and my personality. Um, I just, you know, I, I just do not um, g- excited by it in the same way that, you know, the top you know, folks do. And for me, like I'm very competitive and I, and I like to be good at everything I do. So um, I was just like, I just don't have the passion for this. So I was looking around at what else there was. And actually I didn't go straight from being a software engineer into, into grad school. I actually started going on the engineering management path. National Instruments was an interesting place. It didn't really have a product management function. Like, I don't know if you know much about the history of that company, but it was founded by um, three super brilliant guys, uh, PhD electrical engineers here at UT Austin. um, And uh, they, you know, built technology for technologists. And so, um, and I back in, you know, the time I was there early 2000s was like the stories you'd hear about Google, where the engineers basically ruled the company because it was founded by engineers. Um, the, the concept of 20% time for projects, um, that was a thing at NI. Um, and, and really there was no product management function. Engineering was basically empowered. Hey, you guys are the smart technologists we hired you guys figure out what to build for other smart engineers like yourselves. So as I moved into engineering management, it was, it was an interesting 
functional role because basically I was personnel manager for managing a team of engineers. I was project manager for the projects that were going on, but I was also product manager. And so I was responsible for my group's roadmap. Now, that was really cool. And I ended up really finding my sweet spot there because I was like, oh, like I'm actually way more interested in this, like of what, like what creates value in the eyes of customers and how does, how do businesses turn that into dollars? You know, like that process to me was much more intriguing than, you know, learning proper C++ architecture. (laughs) Um, So, and we were real low level too. We we were, you know, my, my group and originally when I started, we were writing windows device drivers. So all you kids with your fancy APIs, you don't know anything. I was writing code in the kernel. I blue screened, I blue screened so many PCs. You have no idea. Um, I mean, it was, you know, so, but, but, you know, it was simultaneously interesting, but also terrifying because I was, I was getting really good credit for creating these roadmaps and everyone, you know, all my senior managers that I was, you know, presenting roadmaps to were real happy about it. And like, they'd be like, Oh, that's great, Dan, good work. And I'd walk out of those meetings and be like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Like these guys, like they, they, they bought it. Like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I was like, so, you know, and and that's not anything against them. Right. But it was just the, the way the company operated. And I was like, you know, I'm drifting more and more away from, you know, where I started. Now I'm dealing with managing people, managing projects, having to figure out, you know, how to create value for businesses. And none of that speaks to, you know, the training I had in undergrad. And I don't think that I'm necessarily going to learn all those skills, you know, next level of my skills here. So that's why I started thinking about an MBA. Um, and so, so yeah. And then, you know, so, so I graduated out of the dot-com crash also um, at the same time, we were just going into the, uh, the great recession. Um, so also another good time to think about getting out of the workforce. So, so, you know, so did you actually, a, a little bit did of you do the full-time thing? Did you move to Chicago and like, I did. I did do, the do the whole, whole thing? thing? Which, okay. which, which I, I don't recommend any other way. Um, if you're going to go do an MBA, like, don't like, pull the, pull the ripcord, go do the whole thing. Yeah. It's kind of like maybe um, approach it like a mini retirement, right? It's like, go, go meet a bunch of new people, learn some stuff, you know? Oh, now that, I guess it could be very expensive depending on where you go to school. So um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you got to watch the ROI. You got to watch the ROI yeah. for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, well, what about it, Kellogg? Cause I mean, that one I, I, I associated with, um, I, I think it comes a lot of people like brand management, CPG, like, um, was that like of an interest of you? Was it just like, Hey, this is a good school. I'm going to go check out Chicago. Was there any rhyme or reason to that going, going to Kellogg? Um, yeah. So, uh, I'm from Chicago. Um, I actually looked at Northwestern for undergrad, but, uh, you know, 17 year old Dan thought it was too close to his parents, uh, to be, uh, to be comfortable. Uh, so <laughs> didn't have that, probably didn't have that concern. Going probably back. fair. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's an excellent program. I mean, it's consistently top five program. Um, the you know the marketing aspect uh, is probably what they're they're most commonly associated with yeah branding CPG but um, they send more uh, folks to the top three top tier consulting uh, firms than any other company I mean they you know back when going to Wall Street was a was an interesting <laughs> thing uh, right. you know they were they're right up there um, so I mean kind of in you know it's funny because all schools have their uh, 
stereotypes, right? Like uh, University of Chicago, Booth School, right? It's like, well, the, you know, the free, the free market economists, right. the, the Wall Street, people. the finance guys, yeah. um, you know, Harvard is the, um, it's basically a country club, you know, so all the, all the country club folks. Investment um, bankers, the, right? And, at 10, yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Berkeley is, you know, is Berkeley and Stanford are tech and then Berkeley more so as well as like, if you want to get in saving the environment, you know, so they all have their stereotypes, but, but, you know, I, I, as all stereotypes are, when you dig in below the surface, you realize that all those schools are are kind of top in whatever area they touch. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, my cousin had gone to Kellogg uh, as well, so that was a that was a strong thing for me. Obviously, uh, to be able to go back to Chicago for a little bit that was exciting. All right, so you get your MBA, and then you get out. You're basically graduating. So, where did you end up working uh, post MBA? Yeah, so so I was originally looking at. Um, going to going directly to, to small startups. And I, I, I don't know why I, I, I thought it might be, it was, it was the thing to do. Um, and, and I love startups, so nothing wrong with it, but I think, uh, you know, out of, uh, school, I realized that one, I didn't want to go to the Bay area. Uh, I had, I had, I had done a, a summer internship out there and just, I mean, as you might tell from the flight from California now, uh, I was at the time, this is back in 2011, I was like, I don't understand this place. I just like, it's a giant suburb. Uh, it's 3X the price of Austin. It's not as cool. Right. Uh, it's a great place to visit. Don't get me wrong. And like, not saying anything about the people, uh, but you know, the nightlife in Austin was better. And I actually know it's terrible. Anybody listening, uh, Austin is terrible nightlife, especially yeah. during COVID. So yeah, no one, yeah, that's <laughs> right. Everyone stop moving here. So everyone yeah. stop moving here, please. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, so so yeah, so I, I knew I didn't want to go out to the Bay Area. I was, I was looking at startups. Um, and actually, uh, I ended up talking with uh, our, our, our mutual acquaintance, uh, uh, Denny LeCompte over at, at SolarWinds. And, you know, he was, he, you know, at the time, SolarWinds was already, you know, fairly large. I mean, 700 employees. I don't know where they were revenue-wise, but um, they were already, you know, public in 2012. And, um, you know, his, the conversation I had with him was really straightforward. He's like, look, he's like, I understand the appeal of startups, but come here and, and learn, you know, the ropes around product management that, you know, we've, we've created a structure for, obviously you had, you know, tremendous success. And then afterwards you go do whatever you want. Um, and that was exactly, I think, you know, he's, he's sort of a, a whisperer and he tells you exactly what you need to hear. Um, and it worked, it worked for me. And then I, I don't regret it at all. It, it, it was, it was a great, uh, learning experience. And, and I, and I think a lot of early product managers, I, I say it somewhat jokingly, but also, I, I talk to a lot of product managers who are going to startups, or, or even worse, folks who are doing another role inside of startups, and they get they get quote unquote promoted into product management. And I just feel sorry for those folks because they're just gonna get they're just gonna get battered around by you know. Ha- Look, at the end of the day, you can do a lot of things that look like product management inside of a startup and just be massively ineffective. Like even though you're super busy and like you're getting things done, you're not necessarily focused on the right things and and at the right time and, and you don't have, you know, a, a structure, a path around you. I think it can be very, very difficult. So so I'm glad I got that opportunity. All right, good. Yes. I think we can all attest to uh I just maybe just we're gonna go expand a little bit. Like working in a startup can be very rewarding. It can also be some form of hell. So go into it with your eyes wide open. So just, you know, for everyone, uh, for all the fun stories that people talk about and all the business articles, there are plenty of failed startups where there were uh, massive politics and a lot of infighting. But, you know, you know, some of them are good. Some of them are bad. 
Um, all right. So you did the, you know, did the stint product management. Obviously we already talked about the sabbatical. It was fantastic. Sounds like it, but now bring me, you've sort of kind of, you know, if you will kind of taken another transition in your career, it sounds like you're kind of moving into consulting. So what's the idea of kind of going from product management and then when we talk about consulting can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. What does consulting mean to you? Yeah, there's, there's a lot there. So let's just start with a, a basic uh, definition of consulting. So um, your consulting at the end of the day is really just bringing in an outside expert. Uh, and that can be in, you know, any sort of domain at the end of it. Right. I, I usually think of consulting uh, deliverables in three buckets. Um, and if you're, you know, if you're a trained consultant, you think of everything in threes. So that's, <laughs> I thought it was four squares. Consult- I thought it was the, well, four. yeah, either, either, either three <laughs> items or a two by two matrix. If you're a good consultant, you can do any, any, okay, either, in any it. of them. That's, that's the other, that's the other part of consulting. Uh, right. No joking aside. Um, but, uh, but right. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, consultant is either going to help you uh, arrive at a decision, create a plan or help, and execute implementation. Um, those are kind of the, the three buckets, right? And so, um, you know, there's there's many different kinds of consultants, but but if, at the end of the day, they're they're all they're outside experts who are helping with one of those three things. Um, and so, you know, I, after after I left SolarWinds, I went to uh, another startup. I was running product there for a while. And I, I kind of realized, you know, between that experience and my sabbatical, you know, while I was on my sabbatical, I was spending a lot of time just being like, okay you know, what's, what's next, what do I want to do with my life. Um, and one of the things I realized is that, you know, the experience at a startup and even going back to solar, when some of the projects I was doing, you know, I was running some projects that were you know, brand new initiatives for that company in different directions. And I was just like, man, a lot of this time I've just been playing without a net. Um, so having to just figure things out on my own, not really a, a strong structure of, of anyone to tell me which you know, way to go. So I was like, you know, if I'm going to be in that position anyway, I might as well go off and do it on my own. Like, it's just uh, then I have just control of my own destiny. And if I, if I knock it out of the park, I'm fully responsible. And if I, I fail dramatically, well, that'll at least make a good story someday uh, when Brandon and I are hanging out over <laughs> beers. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I, you know, the, the thing with, cons- you know, my product management background was incredibly useful, you know, same with the engineering background and the MBA. I think they've, they've all sort of built to, I call it just a, a tool set, right? A way of, of looking at uh, problems, way of looking at markets um, that allow me to help companies figure out where they're, where they're stuck. Right. And um, you know, it's, I, I still use many of the, the product management uh, thinking or, or frameworks uh, in, in, you know, day-to-day projects I'm doing as a consultant. Yeah. So it's not a, it's not as big of a shift. I mean, a title maybe, but you know, it's not as big of a shift as you, as you might. Well, in some ways I think you're right. You think about, about the net and maybe the networks both ways, I think it's kind of a, an interesting thought around um, so often, you know, the belief is that like, Hey, being like a W and two employee in a product position at a large company or any company is, is going to be like a safe job. But I don't know. I actually think over time, you know, it's not super safe, right? You know, there's people coming and going, there's management changes and stuff like that. And like, sort of like being a consultant in some way sort of like formalizes what is the informal at a company, like a consultant, like, a, you know, all these companies, like, are you delivering? Are you getting along with your managers? Are you doing what they want? Um, are you doing what you want? Can you understand the value you're delivering? Do they understand the value of delivering? But when you're a consultant, it's like a natural conversation to be having on an ongoing basis where sometimes when you're at a company, it's like, that's kind of what's happening, but no one really says that. It's like, oh, we'll just do the mid-year review or something like that. And then, oh, we're moving you out or we're bringing new people in. So I've always said, like, I kind of like the 
the honesty of consulting, right? Kind of the free agent, like everyone's a free agent all the time. Like, why don't we just constantly think like that? Um, so I don't yeah, know. Yeah, no, hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think like, look, uh, you know, it's very important um, to when you're doing this, right? Like if you're a surfer, don't confuse yourself with the wave. Like, yes, I've, I've gone independent, but I think there's a giant secular shift. Um, that's, you know, the, the amount of freelancers, consultants out in the, the job marketplace right now is at all time highs. Yep. Um, well, well, at least in the industrialized age, right? Like if you go back in the day, right? The butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, those guys were all independent, right? Like they just they didn't have giant corporations, you know? Um, so it's only, again, been the short amount of time this whole W2 structure has, has happened. But, you know, even like a giant company like Google, I was reading an article, I think this is last year when I first kind of went off on this, like Google has more independent contractors than they do full-time employees. And Google has like over a hundred thousand full-time employees. Right. So you just think about and Like a lot of these companies are right. It's sort of this, this shadow um, that you don't really think about. So, you know, I, I would like to think I'm, I'm unique and original, but I mean, there's a ton of folks that I think have realized that there's, you know, both there's benefits to both sides, to both parties, right. There's benefits to the companies and to the, and to the, uh, you know, the, the independence. So yeah, I like um, it. No, not like your phrase there, right. The wave. So now I know the wave that you're starting to ride is uh, is churn, right? <laughs> and I know like consultants can do lots of stuff, but I know that this is an area that you're sort of, if you will, delving into your expertise, bringing some expertise to about helping companies, you know, reduce churn and and understand it better. So let's let's start with you know it's a very popular topic, but let's start with the basic. Like, what is churn? How do you define it when you're talking to clients? Yeah. So um, it, the concept of churn in most of the time when it's discussed these days is in the concept of a recurring revenue business. So recurring revenue is just a fancy way of saying a subscription. So if I, you know, pay you a hundred dollars in year one, like you expect me to pay another hundred dollars in year two, I didn't buy sort of perpetual license forever that I could just use the software. And so what we were looking at churn is just making sure that you keep those customers around in those follow on years to continue paying. Um, and there's a, it gets way more complicated from there. Um, I actually have a new blog post coming out on all the different ways and mistakes people make when calculating churn, et cetera. Um, I was hoping to have it published uh, already. Maybe it'll be published by the time this goes, this goes live, but, um, that's, that's churn in a nutshell. All right. Cause I think, but I, I often feel like if you've worked at any large company in various roles, like there's usually just some meeting with the CFO financial person and that your executives are just like, we're losing too many people. Like we're losing too many customers. That's usually just how it starts. I, at least that's been my thing. And then everyone's just like, why? And then just, I don't know, a thousand, a thousand uh, conver- uh, anex- uh, anecdotal conversations take place, right? Like this is everywhere I've ever been. So, um, so when we think about SaaS companies, right? And you think about- Which is you, fertile ground for consulting. Right. Because <laughs> nobody knows. It's true though, but like it really is. Usually it's just like a room of just like, I mean, literally it's, you know, talk about- there's usually somebody with a lot of data, but like it's hard to understand what the hell's going on in that data. So it usually comes back to like who tells the most, the best, most compelling anecdotal story about why churn is happening, right? Um, at least that's been my experience. I'm, you know, I don't know. Maybe other places are doing it better. So, um, but I think you know, I wanted you to touch on like, you know, why do you think it's even more important today? Like, what are some of the the things about like, cause there's all these various, you know, as a service models. So like when you think about all these different businesses, um, what are the, as a service business models that like are most interested in churn and thinking about it today, who are the clients that you think are talking about it the most? Yeah. So, um, 
so like my focus particularly is in uh, business to business or B2B uh, softwares and service companies. Um, now there are many other subscription type companies out there. Um, you know, that you can think about all the uh, delivery box companies, you got Netflix. Um, I don't actually consider, uh, you know, obviously Facebook, you're not paying for, right? Those are like ad supported networks. Um, uh, that'd be, they look at, they look at user retention, but it's in a very different model. But my focus is, is B2B, uh, software as a service. Um, and you know, the, the, the key part to this whole, you know, business problem is that, you know, the, the cost for, you know, the, I guess the percentage of lifetime value that you get um, from a customer on an initial sale is dramatically different in these subscription businesses than it has been in a perpetual license world. Um, so, you know, when you and I uh, were working originally at SolarWinds, um, they didn't have, I mean, they had a perpetual license plus maintenance. Um, but, you know, the vast majority of that customer's lifetime value was collected upfront on that initial transaction. Um, now they eventually acquired um, some other, uh, you know, true subscription businesses and then had to learn like, okay, how are these different? I mean, the other things that, you know, a big thing that, that also changes in those models as well is that now instead of having like an annual renewal or maybe multi-year, uh, potentially you have to keep that customer happy on a monthly basis. And that changes how uh, fast you got to react um, as well. So um, there's a, you know, if, if, if I give you the decision to cancel every month, uh, you better be, you making me happy every month. Uh, That's or right. You better I'm, be I'm on walking. the phone. Better be answering my questions. I'm, I'm <laughs> you better be answering there. my questions, right? I don't have time to forget about that by the time my annual renewal comes up. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but, so, but I kind of, I guess kind of get into it. So when we think about churn and, you know, kind of back to that, this, the meeting I was sort of making fun of like, okay, like we're in there, we're all telling anecdotal stories and, you know, there's some marketing people, some sales people, some product people, who knows, maybe some engineering people in there. Um, so I, how do you kind of like, what's your, you know, back to your uh, two by two matrix or your consulting, like, how do you start to decompose this problem? So that people can, if you will, really start to understand, you know, what's impacting churn. What's your approach there? Yeah, yeah. So um, the one party you didn't mention that's not in that room is the customer often, right? So so number one, I want to go get their opinion. Um, but only maybe tied with that is I do want to hear from all those people in the building, um, but I want to hear from them not what they know the reason is, but what they think the reason is. Um, like it just, it's my engineering data mindset background. Like we're going to treat all of these as hypotheses and then we're going to go see if we can collect data to, to, to validate those or not. And so, um, and, and, you know, one of the things that, you know, I'm very adamant about is, you know, the truth lies in the voice of the customer. Like they will tell you everything that's going wrong. Right. And like, look, there's, this gets very nuanced because even if you start like people will be like, Oh, well you can't talk to all the customers. You have to look at data. It's like, okay, yes. All you're talking about then is just different areas of bias in all your data sources throughout your entire life is bias, right? Like what you see, like, like what you remember, it all has bias. Right. So, so yes, we'll, we'll, we'll go and gather that and then see if we can, you know, this is the, what the beauty of the scientific method is, right. It's like gather hypothesis, gather data. Did, you know, our instruments correct. Did we have to, you know, tune things a little bit differently to, uh, to get to, you know, proving one way or the other, what's actually going on here. Yeah. So um, it, it seems like the ideal way to start is, I mean, the, again, this seems like the real value of consultant because most of the time, even if someone is smart enough and wants to do that internally, they are usually shouted down or they, 
whatever, they just are perceived to have some kind of bias, right? Or, or, or an executive has a strong personality and they are convinced the reason that the thing is, the churn is happening is they have this one specific reason and only that reason. And, and the employees that uh, report to them, you know, are just not in a position to necessarily push back on that. So it does well, seem like the it, ideal outsider role here. Yeah, it's difficult too, right? Because, uh, you know, there's always a danger that the the flashlight is going to end up shining in your area, some things that you don't want uncovered, or maybe the True. problem, you know, as, yeah. a, as one of the executives, it's like, oh, it's actually a sales problem, or it's actually a marketing problem, or it's actually a product problem, or it's actually a customer support problem. And none of those people, one, want, you know, want the blame, I guess, but also, right, like, if, you know, if, if you're the head of customer support or customer success, or however you, you look at it, right, like, how do you make a case that it actually is the product, for example, right? Um, we, because now, you know, you potentially are, are throwing a colleague under the bus to be like, hey, like product engineering, you're, you're not delivering on what customers are expecting. And that's the reason why. And it's seen not necessarily with an objective lens, right? Um, and so, yeah, it can, can definitely be valuable in that case to, to get a more someone who doesn't have like an empire to build inside the company. Right. To, to take a look well, what that. do you think? I wanted to get your take on this. Like the thing. So I think you're right. I mean, of course, right. There's like you don't want it, your department to be labeled as the bad department. But what I find like is that mo- many companies like to your thing about and this is less about churn. It's a little bit about churn. It's a little bit of product market fit. It's like many companies really don't truly understand why customers value their product like they think they do right they believe they have and they will often create pretty complex narratives around we do this for the customer our customer loves us for this and that becomes like this 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 religious almost uh um i don't know how to call it like you know the third rail like the assumption is so embedded in the company that to even challenge that assumption is to almost like, you know, is to, to be struck down immediately. Right. And so I find sometimes like when you think about churn or anything, right, the closer you get to one of these things that like these like very core beliefs and you start to maybe challenge that core belief, like the potential for one great improvement lies there, right. If a company can kind of embrace something that, Oh, we didn't quite understand why people wanted it. Or uh, incredible pain where like everyone gets fired because people just like, you know, it's like anything. The human, the human mind doesn't want to necessarily believe things that are hard. We will find, we all do this. We, we find reasons to not believe something that may be difficult for us to want to believe. So I don't know. I just want to, what, like, what is your take when you're doing this kind of work? Have you run into a company, you know, where it's like, wait a minute, it turns out the thing that you think you're solving here isn't really why people want it. And have you, have you had any success in like turning a company to like see it a different way? Yeah. So, so there's definitely, I mean, I, I think, you know, every product manager laments how little their executive team pays attention to what ca- customers actually want. I don't know any cust- any product manager that's happy with their executives true. and like, Oh, like it's you guys true. just aren't sitting in a room and imagining what the market wants. Um, and, and look, I mean, there's obviously visionary founders out there. There's obviously people that, that, you know, work that way. I think, um, man, there's so many different directions I can go with this. So, you know, I think one of the things you said is you don't want to be the bad department. And like, to me, like when this becomes a problem, often it's not necessarily even that any department is bad or is doing a bad job given what they are supposed to do, right? If you think about the OKR, the objective or key results that they're supposed to create, 
they're doing what they're supposed to do. But as companies grow, the what is it? Is it Met, Metcalf's law? Or, I can't remember the the one that customers experience your your company's functional organization, mm-hmm. um, right? Right. It's it's uh, in your it, via your software. Conway's your law, right? Yeah. Conway's, Conway's law. Conway's law. Yes. Conway's law. Mm-hmm. Metcalf's law is the one with the the yeah, the, the network square, square, like the networks. Um, Conway's law, yeah. though, you shift your organization at some point. You, you shift no your matter organization, what. right? And so, so it's not necessarily that any department's bad, but it's, it's a misalignment, right? And so if you look at like the customer, what the customer's experiencing, right? Like they came in on a marketing message, they got sold something by sales, the product delivered something slightly different, right? The support doesn't, maybe wasn't trained in the best way, right? So everything sort of is good, but it's sort of disjointed, right? And like, it's not you know, and, and people, and that's where people start falling through the cracks, especially in like a lot of the businesses um, that you and I have worked in, which are more like high volume, high velocity type businesses like SolarWinds, um, where especially as you get companies that have grown to a certain scale, become uh, multi-product, right? Um, I think, you know, what I said before about the, I'll touch on this real quick. So what I said before about like the visionary founders, I think one of the things I've noticed is companies start to really have a problem in this retention area often when the company potentially grows beyond that original founder, like if you think of that, that original founder, original founding team, like they are the world's best product managers for that business because they've spent years toiling in the pain and necessity of that market and that need. Right. But then at a certain point, you know, company starts growing, they hire other executives, those, com- those executives are scaling teams, you know, maybe you have, you know, maybe you have a buyout, right, that that founder moves on, or maybe, you know, maybe they start acquiring other products. And now, the, you know, that executive's attention are, is split in so many directions, they stop paying attention to the journey of those customers. And that's where these problems can really start to materialize. No, I, to- I totally agree. And I think that's like, that's probably the number the one, number one challenge, right, is to like maintain that, if you will, that expertise, that customer pain, understanding, and not let it get too diluted as the company grows because it has mm-hmm. to grow. I mean, the company which shouldn't always be negative. The company has to grow because that's to fulfill more and do more, and that's where you're going to have these departments. Sometimes I think we look at like, oh, we're just creating departments, everyone's building feet. I was like, well, listen, no, like we can't have one group do all the support and build the product and sell it, right? Like at some point, like you have to like scale. So that I think is is kind of where we get back to kind of this churn conversation here. So so I think we've hit on a bunch of stuff. So like, how do you, like when you kind of go through, is it a matter of going through and like doing some user surveys and doing some customer interviews? And then like, what it, are you ultimately producing like a report that, you know, with recommendations, are you trying to get in and actually help the customer do some different things when you're actually trying to, if you will, change that reduce churn? How, how do you approach that? Yeah. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, right, trying to really get a hold of what are the, the theories going on inside the company. So, you know, what are the, what are the executive stakeholders, where do they think the problems lie? Um, and then other customer facing teams, right. And those could be on the sales side, those could be on the customer support side. Those could be uh, any number of areas where, where kind of people are, are hitting customer feedback. Um, and then really trying to look at starting to look at, at, at data and where that, data supports or doesn't support that, um, those hypotheses. Now, when you get into the world of data, that can be, you know, a a very long conversation in and of itself. I think, uh, you know, I mentioned before this concept of bias, right? And so if you imagine, imagine you're driving a car, right? And all of the gauges on your 
dashboard are miscalibrated, right? Like, and you think that, you know, oh, I got 200 miles to empty and I'm only going 40 miles an hour, but instead you got five miles to empty and you just passed the cop going 200 miles per hour. Like you're going to have a bad day. Right. Um, And so, so I think like there's this, this myth inside companies that are like, oh, we're collecting data. We have all these, you know, we're doing NPS and we're doing, we're looking at customer support tickets from a, you know, customer support executive uh, or, you know, whatever, um, you know, whatever it might be. But, you know, there's all these little places bias creeps in that really makes, you know, it's like you're driving with a bad you know, uh, front dashboard, right? Like you just, you have actually, you think you're going, you know, one direction or, or one, uh, uh, you know, one speed and you're actually going entirely different speed because, you know, you're, you're oh, you're, the, the way your data systems are set up or the way, you know, you're getting um, customer feedback, you know, doesn't uh, make sense. Let me give you, let me give you a concrete example of where I've seen this come up very recently, actually. So um, one thing, so first of all, if you're not, ca- if you're not collecting any data when customers cancel, that's your first mistake. Definitely cancel something, right? And like, they don't necessarily have to talk to a person. It could be like a uh, embedded survey on your website or a survey monkey survey that gets queued up, right? But like collect that data, get something. Understand though, that, okay, now you have data. That data is going to be biased because especially if you make it as a requirement for people to cancel their accounts, people will select the easiest thing that helps them Amen. get done I've with done that this process. like a million times. Right? Sometimes yeah. just the first thing, whatever yeah. gets this form off my screen. Whatever yes. gets me off this call, whatever gets me, you know, just don't charge my credit card anymore. Amen. Or, I've done this. Uh, so, so look, so, 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 so this is where the data uh, question can get really involved. Cause it's like, step one, are you collecting information? Okay. Bad company, collect information. Step two, yeah, that, that information's good, but okay, it needs to be like adjusted with, you know, other things. And, I, and, and, and you'll see, uh, you know, like if you, if you survey somebody or so, so say you have like a cancellation form they have to fill out when they cancel. If I send them a survey seven days later, I'll get very different answers. Um, not necessarily hundred, like it's, it's def- there's definitely overlap, right? People have their original reasons, right? And, and they'll, they'll, you know, some people are just honest folks who just tell you exactly what's on their mind. But you get very different data if you ask them seven days after they cancel. It'd be very different if a product manager calls them and sits on the phone for 30 minutes to an hour with them digging into all of the other contextual reasons behind that. Right. And I think that's where some of the, the, the larger value can really surface, right. And getting the, a lot of the, you don't get a lot of the whys when you're just looking at the pure analytics. Um, and those, those can be like pure gold to actually solving the, the core issue there. Okay. So that, that sounds good. So the, we'll get some free consulting here. So, all right. So if I'm not doing anything, one actually asks for the survey, at least the survey at the end, why you're going to cancel. If I'm more sophisticated, send up, send up some email reminder, send everyone an email seven days in advance. Cause that is true. Like if you get me at a better time, like I have more time to do a survey, I'll just be calmer, right? Like I probably at the time I will not give you good data. Like when I'm trying to get it off the screen, but later on, if I do the survey, I'll probably be like, oh yeah, I have some thoughts on it. And then three is just, you know, kind of classic product, classic, anything, just call people and ask them. Right. Usually the, they're happy to, to tell it. All right. All right. Well, give me one more, one more before we close out. What else is all, all these people? Cause I, we, I, I know a lot of the listeners, a lot of them are running in SaaS businesses. I'm sure they have churn. I'm sure their executives are making them meet. So they propose to like, Hey, let's collect the data. And what's the next thing that they should do um, to like make look really intelligent in the churn meeting? What what other tip can you give them? 
<laughs> I, I don't know how to make anyone else look intelligent because I probably I struggle with that myself. Um, no, but uh, the um, once you have data, right? I think one thing that really is important is that, especially in B2B uh, scenarios, you often have different, uh, you, have, you have different personas, use cases, segments, depending on the term you want to use, relying in that data. And so, um, you know, in a B2B case, this can get immediately more complicated because potentially you have, uh, like at SolarWinds, we sold IT software to IT practitioners, right? So the IT admin on the other end of uh, the software is using it every day, but he might not be the guy that actually made the, the original purchase decision or the, the uh, decision to, to cancel, right? Because that might be at a, a manager or a director of IT or some, some other business stakeholder. So you have you know, what is the data you have about sort of your end users versus your buyers? Um, and then um, also note that not all your, all your sort of company uh, personas are going to be the same, right? You're going to have people in terms of different uh, behaviors in terms of the value. You know, if, if you have a product of any significant depth, you probably have multiple simultaneous value propositions speaking to potentially multiple different customers at different levels. And so understanding like, what are those different groups? What are they trying to get out of your software? Are you serving one group uh, better than others? Um, and, uh, you know, acting appropriately. I think the one, one the way that most people end up doing this at a, at a, at a very surface level is by like ARR, um, annual recurring revenue um, segmentation. Um, that, that can be a good first step, uh, but I think the next step would be to try to look at more like behavioral data. Yeah, so I'll, get, I'll throw out two other ones, just some real simple ones. Like one, uh, after you've done all that survey stuff, like uh, maybe just instrument the product to actually see what people did. Like, you know, that report that was like super important and you spent like six months using, like someone actually take the time to instrument. Like, did anyone look at the report? How often do people look at the report? How much time do they spend on it? That that usually is a very uh, easy one. And and again, like people are like, well, of course we're going to instrument it. And it's like, well, you know what? You'd be surprised how often things are just not instrumented. And like, and how, to, your, to your thing 100%. about bias, right? Like everyone just assumes, well, oh, that thing we built is great and people love it. And it's like, well, I've been in many products that were, uh, you find out later, like no one's ever used it. You're like, it's, it's kind of a demoralizing feeling, but you're like, oh, okay, good to know. And the other thing I'm just going to speak for myself. Uh, okay. You're trying to figure out who to call, who to actually talk to. Like I did this the other day, I took a survey. I was in a, I had a lot to say about uh, a specific issue and they, you know, they gave me the long comment box and like, I went to town. I went like however many characters in there, I went in there. Right. I just, cause I, in some ways it's just therapy. Like I had a lot to say on this specific issue. I won't go into what it was, but I'm just saying like, if you're interested in like who you should call, just like look at your surveys and just literally look at like who actually spent time writing stuff in just like word count that's all you have to do call those people in fact they'll feel great that someone called them because they clearly have stuff to say they i mean now now if it's abusive of course if it's like bad language and abusive don't call those people but most of the time it's like no like they they want to tell you right so so i did this the other day and i was just like you know if someone's smart they would just call me up but then it's like then i recall you're like eh, i'm not sure they really care but who knows so that would those would be like two, my two easy tips to uh yeah, to yeah. Figure you, you do there that so so i agree but there is a danger there um and and we'd run into this at, at some other companies uh previously where you can get in a trap where you end up talking a lot to your power users yeah and your vocal customers uh, of course your right? vocal customers yeah. right and and this this goes really bad in b2b where people have um i'm not a big fan of customer panels um right the group think and 
and the all group, that. the yeah. group thing, like focus groups have, have, have traditionally shown really bad bias. Right. Uh, they've dominated by one uh, loud mouth. And then, you know, everyone, everyone nods else, in like, agreement. Yeah. Everyone mm-hmm. nods and falls in line. Um, and, and look, if you're, if you're running a high volume business with tens of thousands of customers, like why are you going to make product decisions off of just talking to the same 10 people every quarter? Sure. Like, That's uh yeah. So let me, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll say this, like for people getting started, like if you haven't ever really talked to the customers, haven't done in a while, I guess just the good, easy ones to start with are the people that wrote a lot of comments because they're going to be talkative, right? But then, yeah, once you get the hang of it and you've like talked enough of those, then you start just doing some cold calls. Like, okay, who are some people that maybe haven't talked to us, but we need to get them on the phone. So, yeah. All right. All right, Dan. So we're pretty much out of time here. So one, um, you know, what everyone should probably do is just hire you. They should just hire you to come in and help them with the product trend. And if I wanted to hire you, like, where could I find you out on the intranets here? On the internet, um, you can find me at uh, Product Tranquility. Uh, so all one word dot com uh, be my website. Otherwise, uh, I'm on LinkedIn at Dan Balkowski, B A L C A U S K I, on LinkedIn. So I uh, would love to love to hear from anyone who's uh, got any thoughts. You know, I'm, I'm always learning. So so you know, tell me even if you disagree. I'm constantly trying to update my own bias. Um, so so definitely let That's me right. reach we out all, in the conversation. We all need to update our own bias. Um, yeah, so we will put uh, uh, links to everything Dan just talked about there. His website, his LinkedIn, if he actually creates some content, finishes his blog post, well, I'll put that in there. If not, you'll just you'll have to reach out to him. You have low, to get it. Low, so, low, low, low. All right. Well, Dan, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Dude, it was so much fun. Thanks for having me, Brandon. Of course. All right. And if this is the first time you've ever listened to Software Defined Talk, well, welcome. Glad to have you here. Uh, probably right now in your podcast player, just go back, hit subscribe. Uh, if you would like, I'm happy to send you a sticker. So this is all I got to do. Just send me your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com. I will be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. Maybe you uh, live in one of the countries Dan mentioned. I will be happy to send you stickers there. And with that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.